Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopia and dystopia. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about um, a book or uh, I guess the subject of a particular book. Uh, this is a book called Anime Architecture, which um, I came across. I'll just give it its full title, Anime Architecture, Imagined Worlds and Endless Megacities. Um, this is a book I came across on Twitter when uh, Konstantinos Dimopoulos, who was on the show recently talking about his book about um, video game cities, he he tweeted about this and um, I thought it looked cool. Uh, yeah, I thought it might be fun to talk about. So this is a book which is, um, well, you'll hear a bit more about it when we speak to my guest, but, but it's about um, the backgrounds in anime. And just to give you an idea, so the, the, the films that are covered in this are... Uh, Akira, Pat Labor, the movie, Pat Labor 2, the movie, Ghost in the Shell, Metropolis, Innocence, Tekon Kinkrete, Tekon Kinkrete, I guess that's how you say it, uh, Rebuild of Evangel- Rebuild, Rebuild of Evangelion. So these are all um, dystopian films. So these are all um, future cities of, of different kinds. So obviously chimes in with our interests here. These are visions of of places uh, from from the future. So um, yeah, thought it'd be fun to talk about. Um, I want to say quickly. Unfortunately, we did have some technical problems um, when we were doing the interview, and unfortunately, that's come out in the sound a bit. Uh, some of um, Stefan, my guest's sounds, is a bit. Dodgy, I'll try to edit around it as best I can, but um, just to, just to, I mean, it's mostly okay, but now and again, it's, it's a bit choppy, you'll, you'll, you'll see, hopefully not, not too bad. Um, before I get onto that, there's something, a new project I've got that I wanted to tell you about. So, I currently have, um, should be up by the time you're hearing this, I have a Kickstarter up for a book that I want to write. Um, this is a book called Object Oriented, Exploring Video Games Through Items. Um, if you happen to listen to the, to the other podcast, which I, I used to do with Rosie, Get Object, you'll know that video game objects was also the theme of, of that podcast. So it's kind of something that's emerged out of that. But basically, yeah, it's a book with um, where each chapter is dedicated to a category of object, so like, uh, yeah, keys, maps, drugs, food, um, swords, whatever else. Um, so each one's going to be be looking at a different object, and the idea is to kind of look at what makes the the most ex- notable examples of that object stand out. To kind of look at how those objects reflects reflect um, kind of ideas and concepts from from our culture. And to kind of use them to, to, I guess, to kind of do what I do in this podcast sometimes, which is to kind of use them as a means to re- to reflect back on our society, our culture, our, our politics, and to try and um, provide a lens through which to kind of critique and uh, think about our society as well. 
Um, so that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'd like to do. It's, it's a good, if it comes to fruition, it'll be a book uh, in full colour. It's got uh, so it's got images um, in it. It's being designed by a friend of mine called Liam, and hopefully it'll be very cool. Um, so I'd really appreciate if you could at least check it out. Um, there's the video for the the Kickstarter is like two and a half minutes long, and that explains pretty well, I think, what exactly what I want to do with the book. So um, yeah, please check it out if you if you if you've no interest in supporting it if you could at least uh share it on on twitter or, or facebook or wherever you you think might be good I'd, I'd really appreciate that i mean the official let me see if i can find i mean i think the the official url kickstarter.com slash projects slash object oriented slash object dash oriented that's a bit long so just go to my twitter utopian horizons and i'll have a link up to it there um maybe i'll put it i'll probably put it in the description as well for this um episode that'll make it easier to find so yeah um don't know if this has any chance of getting funded uh quite ambitious in terms of the goal just because me and Liam wanted to focus on doing something that was kind of high quality. So we we look we we didn't want to get like cheap, you know, do everything cheap sheet paper. And so as I say, it's good being professionally designed by Liam. He's a professional designer. Um, it's it's you know good paper stock, good quality thing, a nice big cool book to have. Hopefully, when it if it, if and when it's finished. Um, and yeah uh if you if you enjoyed this to get object if you listen to that podcast you definitely get, get something out of it i'm sure but as i say hopefully doing some of the stuff i try to do here um so yeah maybe it'd be something you're interested in please consider checking it out um or at least uh sharing it with with other people uh if it's not something for you that would be amazing yeah so that's that Again, it's called Object Oriented if you want to find it on Kickstarter. So let's get back to uh, to the subject of this episode. And I'll leave you now with my conversation with uh, with Stefan, the author of the book we've, we've been talking about here, Anime Architecture. Joining me now is Stefan Wierklis. I hope I pronounced that right, Stefan. Um, he is the author of a, a book called Anime, Anime Architecture, Imagined Worlds and Endless Megacities. Uh, and he's come on to talk to me a bit about, about that book and the, the subject of that book. So, um, yeah, thanks very much for, for joining me, Stefan. Thank you for reaching out and for having me in your show. No worries. Um, so, so to start off, could you just for, for people who have no idea what this book is, could you could you tell us um, what the book is, what it, what it's about? Well, it's a book about the scenery, the background paintings of some quite well-known anime films, uh, specifically about science fiction movies from the late 80s to the late 90s, mostly. And in this book, you will find only background paintings. So no characters, no action, no vehicles, no guns, just the plain world building, the setting of the movies. Yeah. So yeah, very uh, 
very visual book with lots of cool uh cool scenery in it for sure um yeah i wrote some texts but you don't have to read them <laughs> no, the, i think you do have to read them because the, the text is very illuminating on on the images you're seeing and uh and kind of the the um yeah, the relevance of them and how they're used and the, and the process behind it. So I think the, the text is just as valuable. But yeah, the, the pictures yeah. are nice to look at for sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, could you... So I think just to give people a bit of context for what we're going to be talking about, um, could you explain a bit about how these backgrounds and just kind of generally how anime is made because I didn't kind of like I've seen some of these films I kind of have an awareness of anime but I didn't really know much about the kind of technical process of of how it how it how it's made like the fact that these backgrounds exist as like separate scenes and things I wasn't so much aware of so could you maybe just talk a little bit about the kind of process of these backgrounds and and how they're made and and how the scenes are put together yes sir Actually, this question or your trajectory in this question is very much my own journey into the field. Because when I started with this whole undertaking, it was in 2007, actually. Not just this book. I had very little knowledge about anime. I was just looking for an excuse, basically to spend time in Tokyo right? because I was fascinated by the city and my colleague who was commissioned to produce a show about anime. We got a budget to research anime in Tokyo and it gave me time to spend four months there and we've been visiting the artists in their studios because this guy, my colleague David Tehili, he had seen a lot of anime and he had to get to know some of the artists and we had been lucky to visit their workspaces. At that time, for example, I haven't seen Ghost in the Shell or Pet Labor or some of these what I know now of classic movies. I was there as an exhibition curator. So I was always interested in finding stuff and pieces which I could put on the wall finally. That was my aim. And so one day we came into the studio of Piero Masaugra and he showed us his work. And that was the first time that I have seen background paintings for anime and they were just beautiful. They were detailed. They were they're quite small in size. They are mostly around A3. They actually take B3 size, but not such a common format. So if you look at an A3 painting, very detailed, done by hand with like wet color on dry paper, uh, illuminous, illuminating colors, radiant details. I was just fascinated by these works. And then later I went back to my uh, studio and researching all these things and i found wow that's really it's a it's a it's really a craft of its own to make these worlds and i thought my fascination that i had in this visit to Ogua studio is probably one that i could transmit 
to other people if they would have the chance to see these paintings. Yeah, that was the start of this whole undertaking and it's uh, until today my passion mm. to reveal these things in the background, bring them to the fore. Yeah. So you, I guess one of the one of the, the obvious questions that, that people would say um, when you're uh, when you're talking about that, when you make a book like this, is like why would you focus on backgrounds? Because people often think of backgrounds as just be, yeah being in the background, like they're not. They, they think of what's happening in front of them as being as being important, particularly like in a, in a in a anime film or something. They think of the, what the characters are doing, what the characters are talking about. That's the important thing that that you might assume, or some people might assume. Um, but you've, you've complete, as you say, you've completely removed that. You're only focusing on what's behind. You're focusing on these, these, uh, these cities, these dystopic landscapes, these science fiction worlds that are being created in, in the background. So what, why would you, why would you decide to focus on that? What, what, what's the kind of impetus to do that? Yeah, it's the initial reaction of somebody watching anime and thinking that the backgrounds are not important. It's really the story and the action. That's actually what the artists that I'm working with, the background painters, are striving for, for this impression. So if you would leave the cinema or the TV screen and say, oh, that movie had really great backgrounds, that would be right. a flaw in the whole production because it would mean that you were focused not on the story but on the background so if they take all your attention then something's wrong with the whole movie so that people the, the fact that people don't really pay attention to the background is actually what the artists want to achieve so i have to in my work like it's a kind of paradox operation to bring these things to the foreground now uh, there are a few examples in anime, especially the ones I have chosen for the book, of course, and they mostly stem from Mamo Oshii, the director, like Pet Labor 1 and 2 and Ghost in the Shell. In these movies, you have sequences in which there are almost no characters appearing on screen, or if they are, then it's clear that they are um, kind of strolling through the city and they are experiencing the cityscape from a subjective point of view. Mm. And in these scenes, the backgrounds are actually the protagonists of the story and are therefore very detailed and very complex in their production. And these have been the pieces that I have seen first. So actually, I was from the first moment focusing on these sequences and I thought, okay, in these instances you have background artwork that doesn't want to stay in the background. So I took it from there, basically. Do you think that's something kind of inherent to anime or something that's kind of just a feature of the films that you focused on? Like this... this um that paying particular attention to the background and the way that you say, like um, making the 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 city uh, like a focus or, or a character in, in some sense, 
Um, but do you think that's that's just kind of a feature of the work that you focused on, or do you think there's something about anime that makes it pay particular attention to its backdrops, perhaps more than other mediums might? It's really a feature of the movies I selected. It's not a feature of anime in general, because if you take <clears throat> older productions from Disney or Pixar or any of these high-end productions from the US, you have the same dedication to detail and to the background painting. In this case, which I was describing, the scenes from Ghost in Shell or Pet Labor, for example, these are meditative sequences where the protagonists are thinking or pondering over their own identity issues in relation to the cityscape. These are very slow moments in action movies. They, all these movies are packed with action otherwise. But, uh, why we have these sequences today in these movies is really a bold step of the producer, mainly Ishikawa-san from Production IT, who allowed his director, Mamoru Oshii, to take three or four minutes off the action basically, and go strolling mm. through the city. That's It's easy to cut these elements out, no? And just let the action go. So it's, it's not an achievement of anime in general, but it's really an achievement or a special, a special trait in these movies and this production constellation of staff, a director who is just looking for his chance to bring out this, these quiet moments that he really wanted to have. So, yeah, we cannot uh, say that this is true for all anime because many other productions are obviously driven by action only. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Oshii is a really, um, really interesting figure and someone you've obviously talked a lot about in the book because you've covered a lot, a lot of the, the films, but... Um, yeah, you, you had this this quote in there, which was really interesting. Where uh, he says, uh, "Over the years, I've come to realize that the silent world behind the characters is where the director has to communicate his core vision. The drama is just the surface of the film; the backgrounds are the director's vision of reality." And yeah, I think that's a really uh, interesting perspective that you probably don't see a lot in filmmaking in in general. And like you say, I think. <laughs> It makes it makes the likes of Ghost in the Shell and um, his other works really stand out. Like the, this use of um, backgrounds, like this use of the city to 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 communicate a vision. It's really um, unusual and really effective. I think. Yeah, I think he's a bit how you say teasing with these comments because, right. of course, or she he's obsessed with weaponry and machines and all kinds of war scenarios so uh he has also a very strong focus on the action he's he made this comment in uh, relation to the second part of innocence it's uh, of course in the show uh -huh. and at the time of production of this movie the the craft or the position of the art director was challenged. The, the movie was released in 2004, and between 1995, like the 
the release of Ghost in the Shell in 2004, the whole production environment shifted from uh, paper-based to digital. Mm. And in this transition, the art director as the master painter and also the guy who had the most skills on paper, like traditionally, they had to find a new position in a, in a completely different workflow. Because before it was clear that the background below the background is the domain of the art director, but in a digital environment, that's not so clear anymore because the background suddenly also belongs to the cameraman and the lighting technicians and all these things which come in. So the art directors in the traditional sense of the word, they had to find a new place and that's where Oshi said, well, actually, that's where I can make my imprint, my vision of, because the action or the production of the story, that's still the same business. Now, of course, that the, uh, the characters are animated differently and so on, but the storytelling, that didn't really change with the move to digital. What changed was really the look and the... Yeah, the, the aesthetics of the the stories are still basically the same. Yeah, that that, that makes sense completely. Um, I, I wonder if we could talk a bit about the the um kind of the nature of these these um of anime and the the fact that you're having to construct a place from scratch. I, I suppose particularly when you're talking about the the pre digital. Um, age as you as you mentioned where everything has to be has to be painted in this kind of unbelievably intricate detail which yeah as you say some of the images when you get the chance to sit and look at the images and you look at how detailed they are it's it's incredible that it's been painted but um yeah in, in terms of having to construct a place from scratch um do you think that that perhaps helps in terms of um do you think that gives a unique perspective or helps in terms of why some of these films have such a sense of place? Because I'm, I'm thinking of things like, so obviously I'm sure like when people make uh, films as in live action films, they obviously also think carefully about locations and, and things like that. But uh, the locations exist and you can put a camera there and film them. In, in some of these examples in the books, you're seeing things like the artists um, having to like start off by like drawing maps of like the area and think about where is this thing in relation to this? Like, uh, how how would this look from here? And so it's not it's not just that they're having to paint the backgrounds; they're having to think about and and that they have to make that have a kind of aesthetic coherence. They have to think about the coherence of of the of the city as a as a place, which yeah, it just it seems to be um, by inherent to the medium that it really focuses your uh, attention on like what is this fictional place we're creating? How can we we make it coherent? So yeah, I just wondered if you you think that process of having to build really from from the the, the ground up, if you think that gives a kind of unique perspective or, or lends something special to to anime and and the places that we see there. Yeah, it's, this is a unique feature of all animated movies, not not only anime, but mm. uh, all the anime, all animation share this potential and the challenges associated with it to be able to create 
a completely different world from scratch. And then it really depends how believable this whole thing should be. How much weight do you want to put on the backgrounds and on the perspectives? So do you really need a coherent set where you have different camera angles from the same buildings? And so you really need to know what's behind the building and how does the backside of the building look? That's the challenge of all concept and production designers in all movie making. Uh, for me, the interesting dichotomy of these two aspects is um, that sometimes you need it and sometimes you don't. For example, I don't really understand the city. I, it could be that they had a map. I didn't find it. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because the, the cityscape is always immense and it's overwhelming. So you're not really uh, focusing whether this is or not. Of course, there are some like the main highway, and so they are coherent sets. But the city in the background, far a bit further remote, I'm not sure if this is really making sense. But visually, it makes sense. The impression is what you want. So another uh, extreme is like the like what I laid out in the book about the set of Metropolis, where the concept design created maps for all shots, where they what the camera would see, what would move from where to where, and he did a really precise job. He doesn't only do this for um, movies, but he also did this, for example, for for manga and other productions where you have one location and you really need to know how it works. Like he did the same for Evangelion or the Rebuild series, for example. Um, and then, th like that's the invention stage. Then for Oshi, it works a bit different because he's always working with cityscapes that almost exist. So there is a hybrid um it's it's a hybrid construction of documentation style which is based on photographs real location photographs taken in black and white usually and um concept designs adding future parts of this already existing city or um strange strange elements or estranged elements to this really existing cityscape. So in this case, the um, art director has to unite or fuse these two elements together, the invented, like um, futuristic imaginary city with the really existing, already de decaying cityscape. So you have all these kind of different methods to create an alternative world which is always a matter of abstraction and transformation up to the degree of believability you want to achieve like that's the main thing no it has to be credible still you cannot do anything so if you go too far 
and you're off the map, basically, people won't believe it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting in the book as well, seeing like the different, um, you know, the, what the different things they're trying to get out of their backgrounds, I suppose. Because, like you said, you mentioned the use of location um, photography um, for a couple of them, where the impetus is very clearly, or, the, or there's more of an impetus on finding, um, yeah, of, of extrapolating from a real place and just kind of, um, yeah, giving it giving it a, a twist that kind of moves into the future and that keeps that relatability. And then th- there are other ones where other examples you give where the, where they're, yeah, they're perhaps coming from a different perspective or a different, um, they have a different goal in mind, I guess, in terms of what they're trying to get out of their backgrounds. Um, and yeah, I, think, I guess this is why it's really interesting for me about it. Like this is, these are all examples of people like creating a fictional dystopia, but they're, they're all examples of, of people thinking very deliberately about what they want to get out of that place, what they want to get out of that background, whether that be like um, to give a certain atmosphere to the film or to, or to have it feel relatable or for it to reflect a particular theme. So yeah, I think it's really interesting to see um how they yeah also the 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 style or the intention of construction of the city is always reflected in the story like for akira for example the the city is built to be destroyed from the beginning it is right uh it's just it's just there to take it down mm. for oshi the city is there to be transformed he's taking parts of it down and constructing new parts, but it's never erased completely. For Anno with the Evangelion city, the city is actually, it's not a city, it's a, a model of a city. He deliberately thinks of the set as a model set because he's influenced by the Tokusatsu films of the 70s and 60s. And he so that's is like a Godzilla really... and stuff, right? The, exactly. Yeah, for Godzilla, the city doesn't exist. The city is just prey. No, there are the in the Godzilla movies, there are still a few people living, but it's mainly about destroying the buildings, yeah. eating the buildings. Yeah. And in the city of Evangelion, uh, Tokyo Three. There are almost nobody's living there. I mean, it's all just a mock up, basically. So it's an arena for the battle between angels and Evangelions. It's a very different city from like Neo Tokyo of Akira, where people are actually living and having demonstrations. And, you know, there's a lot going on in the city. In, in Tokyo 3, there's not so much going on. It's just a city. Trend, moving up and down and like being ready for attack. Yeah. So it's a these are very different conceptions and or she is kind of in the middle of these two extremes. I feel. So I mean, I've I've already touched on it. We've already touched on this a, a little bit, I suppose. But I think probably the the thing I personally enjoy most about the book, aside from just kind of looking at the backgrounds, is is when you're kind of talking about what the backgrounds of the architectures are there for, like 
you know when they're reflecting or enhancing a particular theme or they're or they're there for a particular they're being used for a particular purpose at a moment in the film um i wondered if you could just um give one or two examples perhaps for people listening and they can perhaps get an idea from that of the kind of things that that are, that are in the book yeah well as i said in the beginning the backgrounds are best used if you don't really notice them so in in moments where they really they reflect the story or the action on the screen in a way that totally makes sense so you don't really recognize them as an additional element but they are just there to hold the whole scenery like for example in goes in the shell where the old city is cluttered in advertisement and signs telling all kinds of things to people and the protagonists or the all inhabitants are basically challenged by the overflow of information to a degree where they lose their identity and they try and they start asking themselves oh what is me if so much of everything I think is around me and if I'm surrounded basically by all this information which are in my mind. So if I'm externalized into the city, that the most extreme case is of course Motoko Kusanagi, the, mm. the main character, because she's connected to this network of information through her own body. So she's really immersed in the way of diving in. And the backgrounds just reflect this, or not just, but they <laughs> do a really good job in reflecting this um, immersion in a, in a sea of information. And um, yeah, in the case of, of Anno, for example, like in the rebuild of the book we have, the layouts drawn by Anno the, himself, because he took care of the location in with a with a great focus on the on the transformation of the city, and in these like um, in how you say um, these layouts are basically a manual for the CG staff to create the cityscape. And he explains in these manuals how he wants the city to appear as a model like with like the shot number so and so in the tokusatsu movie so and so it has to appear like this or he's laying out um streets not according to the need of the street like would there be a shop or you know is it a shopping street or residential area no no he's he's uh planning the streets according to the angels attacks which might be most efficiently destroying a large part of the city if it's constructed like this and that yeah. so he's really um it's almost an abuse of urbanism yeah. and of course the most uh, luxurious or uh impressive destruction is that of neo tokyo in akira when it's really finally falling down and the guys are um, 
driving back into the ruins of the of the city because this very glamorous and shining cityscape has to fall of course that's like the the main goal of the city or she really doesn't like this <laughs> but Otomo right. enough fans of such an aesthetic he can do it yeah okay cool well um yeah, it's been uh it's been uh, fun to talk to you and yeah if anybody is interested uh interested in the book and would like to to look at some of these um beautiful backgrounds as i said the book's called uh anime architecture so uh, yeah please uh, check that out if you if you want to see more it tends to be out of stock more or less quickly right to me okay i have some left oh <laughs> uh, okay there you go cool okay well um thanks very much for joining me stefan that is the end of my conversation with stefan hope you enjoyed it um sorry about the audio uh i tried to yeah like i said i tried to edit around it i had to cut out quite a lot of bits yeah i was, I, I was kind of wondering whether it was bad enough that I, that I had to not put the episode out but i think it was okay and i think the bits in there where it's a bit choppy still can mostly understand um it doesn't kind of ruin the flow of what's been said too much so so i hope it was okay um yeah as i mentioned at the beginning um It'd be really cool if you could check out the Kickstarter for the, the book. I want to do object-oriented. Just go to my Twitter, at Utopian Horizons, and you can find the link to that there. Um, as I said, uh, sharing, anything you could do uh, with regards to that would be amazing. Uh, and obviously, you can tweet me there about the podcast, just gem- more generally. You can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. I'm going to be back soon probably to talk about vampires and utopia. So uh, look out for that soon. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.